Current Weekly on Dublin Digital Radio. The result of the referendum will be announced in Ireland on whether to allow gay and lesbian couples to marry. If the yes vote wins, Ireland will be the first country in the world to approve same-sex marriage after a popular ballot. There are extraordinary scenes here matching at Dublin Castle. You can take a look at the pride behind me. Historic victory for marriage equality. Ireland has become the first country in the world to approve same-sex marriage via popular vote. So the yes vote has lost, and the no camp has won. The people of Ireland have rejected the Lisbon Treaty with a clear majority of 54%. The Irish are noted for their rebellious character, and they proved it again today. They were told by the entire political establishment to back the Lisbon Treaty, which aims for greater European convergence on domestic and foreign affairs. But they voted no by a clear margin. You're being asked to vote yes to remove the ban on remarriage in Ireland. The arguments against doing so are misleading and many are simply not true. Yes, why? Because I think it's necessary that we vote not for ourselves but for other people. We want to have an open society and we should vote for the majority. I'm just thinking uh, it's better for the future for everybody to have the right to remarry. The Irish government has agreed to hold a referendum at the end of May on whether to reform the country's near-total ban on abortion. Currently, abortion is only allowed when a woman's life is at risk, but not in cases of rape, incest or fatal fetal abnormality. Well, I think the, um, the, the, the issue here is about choice. Well, yesterday's events in Paris have focused attention here in our blasphemy law. We're one of the few Western societies to have one. I am pleased to inform the House that the government has agreed at its meeting on the 30th of September to put this question to the people and that a referendum should be held on the question of amending Article 46.1 of the Constitution to remove the offence of blasphemy. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her or it? Basically, that is the Odyssey. I think I, I'll say bone cancer in children. What's that about? Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Current weekly on Dublin Digital Radio. This week we're speaking to David Kenny, an assistant professor of law in Trinity College Dublin. He specialises in teaching constitutional law, private international law, and critical perspectives on law. Hi, David. How are you? Great. Thank you. Nice to be here. Cool. Um, I just thought we might start off by talking about referendums general in Irish constitutional law. Why do we have referendums and when do we need to have them? Yeah, I mean... What's I suppose strange about Ireland is how many referendums we have compared to most countries. And the reason for that is that our constitution says it can only be changed uh, if we have 
a proposal that is passed by both Houses of Parliament and then is voted on by the people. And only if sort of 50% plus one uh, of the people uh, vote in favour of it, can the amendment actually go through and change the constitution. So that means that we have to have a referendum for any change, no matter how big uh, or how small it is. And that would be unusual. Not many countries would have constitutions that require a popular vote for every single change. Some countries would have votes on very major changes, or there'd be other kind of difficult processes you'd have to go through to pass a, a, an amendment. But it's quite unusual to have this clause where you, you have to have all the people vote. And that means that the Irish people get a huge say in terms of uh, at the content of the constitution. They get a veto on every single sort of change that is proposed, but it also means we end up talking a lot about the constitution, about different changes, and we end up having to have long public debates about whether or not we should sort of make these changes. So it puts a lot of uh, pressure on the Irish people. They sort of are asked often multiple times a year to come out and vote. Sometimes they care a lot about the issues, other times it's more difficult or the issues are more complicated. Uh, everyone, I think, has probably some memory of voting on an EU treaty or a campaign around an EU treaty. We have referendums on those and they're very difficult because nobody really understands what they say and it's very hard to explain them. So it can be a brilliant part of our, our political process and it gets people involved, but it's also quite difficult and quite complicated and it asks a lot of people to engage with these issues again and again. Yeah, okay. So there's issues of maybe perhaps voter fatigue on these kind of many multiple times per year or or in, in a relatively short period of time, but then also some issues can be a bit more complex to understand why am I being asked to vote on them. Okay, cool. So another thing that I was interested to ask you about was a referendum needs to be held for any change. So removing text, adding text in, um clarifying text. I was reading that like certain countries don't have have parts of their constitution that can't be amended, like Portugal. Mm -hmm. Is there any part of the Irish constitution that can't be amended? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is that there is there is no part. The Irish constitution can be changed in any way. Uh, but we only know that um, because the courts had to tell us that. So uh, the constitution doesn't say that any part is unamendable. Uh, other constitutions, as you say, uh, Germany being another prominent example, have these parts that you're supposed to never change. That there's no change allowed. Um, and the question that sort of came up, it was in the 1990s was, could there be some change the Irish people would try to make and it would contradict other values, higher values that maybe are in the constitution and that would be impermissible. And that was certainly possible because our constitution has some sort of language in it that says that in particular rights kind of exist even above the constitution, right? That, you know, there are rights that um, were there before the constitution was put in place and exist above it. So the argument was sort of, well, maybe we can't change the constitution in a way that would conflict with those rights, whatever they might be, that are sort of above the constitution. And the courts were sort of asked about that and they said, no, look, there may be rights out there that are even above the constitution, but we don't know exactly what they are. We're not going to tell you what they are. And so the Irish people have to decide if they want a change to be made that's it, it can be made. And if they vote on it, if they do it through the proper mechanism, then that's the end of it. It is 
a legitimate change to the constitution. And that means that there is a full power that the people can change anything they want in any way they want. And the courts won't say that that's a problem. So it really gives a lot of power and a lot of trust to the Irish people in terms of how they want the constitution to be. Cool. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, I suppose one thing that I'd like to discuss is the process and the steps leading up to a referendum and any kind of change that might come about that from that. I know that there was a citizens assembly before um that kind of la- last winter and in early 2017 before the bill was put towards the door for the- amending the eighth amendment. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a bit about a citizens assembly and how that fits into the referendum process? Do you need to have a citizens assembly first? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm only very slightly limited in what I can say because I was I presented, so I gave evidence to the citizens assembly. So there's uh, uh, some limits to, ha- to how I can talk about it, but uh, I can certainly happy to talk about it in, in sort of general terms. Um, you definitely don't have to have any kind of process like that, but it's become a bit more common. It's sort of really only started with the Constitutional Convention that was held back in 2013, uh, which was really about uh, same-sex marriage. There was a number of other things discussed, but everybody kind of realised that that was uh, a way of introducing the idea of same-sex marriage and and a constitutional change on that. Um, That involved both ordinary citizens and politicians sort of talking about that issue, uh, uh, arguing it out and recommending by a huge majority that that change go ahead. And I think that was felt to be quite effective in a lot of ways. And that might have motivated the government to do this again on this very sort of, you know, controversial uh, topic of abortion. The thinking being probably twofold. One, it kind of gave the government some uh, political uh, distance from the question. They would say, look, we're putting it to the people these ordinary citizens to decide uh, what to do. And then at the same time, it allowed people to have this uh, involvement in shaping the question. The problem with referendums is it's just a yes or no. You don't get to, you know, say yes, but, or wouldn't it be better if it was some other way? You just get to say, yes, I approve. Or yeah, no, it's a I don't. blunt kind of question to the electorate. And like you said, for some of the more complex issues, that can make people feel really conflicted when they're working out what way they want to vote or if they're going to vote at all. Exactly. And sometimes you feel like you don't have, you know, as much power as you know the people really do because they don't get to say what the change is going to be. So the idea was to give this group of citizens a chance to look at the issue and debate it and to really have a say in, in formulating the proposal. And I think it has been very influential insofar as what we're voting on on uh, uh, the 25th of May is very, very similar to what the Citizens' Assembly recommended, just very small sort of uh, uh, differences. So I think there's there's no doubt it was influential. And I think if you look at the way that, that this issue was talked about, um, you know, I think even two or three years ago, it probably looked more likely that we'd be voting on something a lot narrower, maybe a, a much smaller change. And I think it was probably the influence of the Citizens' Assembly that brought up this idea of, you know, really just take it out of the constitution entirely and provide for a law for, for 12 weeks. That really, I think, took hold in the Citizens' Assembly. And without that, you know, we might be voting on something very different. So it's kind of amazing that it is a, a citizen-led change. And that's uh, uh, unusual in this country insofar as it's only in the last sort of five or so years that we've done that. But maybe it'll be more common. Maybe we'll be asking people not only to vote on these changes, but also to help decide what the proposal should be. Maybe that's going to be yeah. a new part of the, the process. Yeah, but it's not a part of the process that's written into law anywhere. It's just kind of more... 
as you said, to allow the electorate to have some shape early on in the process, given that the you're going to have that you know, yes or no choice at the end of it, which yeah. can be quite blunt. Absolutely. The, the only sort of uh, thing that would have happened like that before would have been like parliamentary committees. So there would have been like committee in parliament that would talk about, should we make a change like this? Or there might be an expert report. But the idea of getting citizens involved in shaping the process, that's very new. And it's also a, a strange thing about our constitution was that because of the, the history of it, it was passed in 1937 when, you know, Ireland still wasn't fully independent from Britain, that the king was still the head of state. And essentially, this constitution that doesn't mention the king at all was going to be controversial. It was going to be difficult. So it was written in secret, basically. It was, you know, not a document that you could have a big public consultation on and, and get everyone's views. It had to be written by a small group of people in a room somewhere and then just produced at the right moment. So it's kind of amazing now that 80 years later, people are getting a say in, in shaping the constitution because the way our constitution came about meant that we didn't get that say uh, at the start. All the Irish people got to do was vote on whether or not to accept it or, or reject it. Yeah, it was presented as a whole document exactly. 80 years ago. Exactly. And so they didn't get that chance to say, well, maybe wouldn't it be better if we did this? And they're kind of getting that now. Cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I suppose we, we could maybe talk about some of the referendums that are coming on later this year. Mm. And I don't know, maybe a good place to start would be the one on blasphemy. Yeah. That's due to be held later on in 2018, as is the referendum on um, the women's place in the home. They're both kind of interesting features of our constitution. How do you think those referenda will play out? Do you think that they will, is there any chance that they might be pushed back? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think uh, there may be another one about directly elected mayors or something, but I don't even really know why we're, having that as a constitutional <laughs> amendment. That's, a, that's another question. Um, so yeah, I think there is a chance they could be pushed back because of all the sort of political instability at the moment. So um, there's a lot of sort of fighting between the, the, the government and Fianna Fáil and the minority government we have now could collapse and that would kind of delay everything. But I think it, all going well, there'll be sort of at least two, maybe three votes, probably in October or November. And as you said, blasphemy and, and the women's place in the home are the two really big ones. And these are considered to be really old fashioned sort of, you know, uh, uh, you can tell they're from the 1930s kind of provisions. Of their era. Yeah, yeah. And so blasphemy is a constitutional crime. Um, it, the constitution says that blasphemy is, is sort of is a criminal offence, which sort of seems uh, very strange to us now. Uh, and I think it'll it'll be symbolically important for people to vote on that. But it's also, I think, uh, the case that it never was that significant that it was in there. There hasn't been prosecutions for blasphemy in a very, very long time. And really, um, it's been completely, uh, uh, you know, I think unusable uh, since the constitution was enacted. Um, a law was passed back in 2009. The government said they kind of had to pass some law on blasphemy. So there is this kind of law that, that technically makes it a crime. And famously, sort of Stephen Fry was reported for possibly committing for blasphemy. Chats with gay bird. For chats with gay bird, exactly. <laughs> Blasphemous chats, maybe, right? And I think that the even in that case, I think everyone agreed he probably didn't breach the law. It's very hard to commit blasphemy, it really is. Yeah. And so it's not that, you know, practically significant. You know, I think there might never be a prosecution if that law stayed around. But it's symbolically important, perhaps, that people get to say 
maybe we don't want that in the constitution anymore. So the citizens, uh, sorry, not the citizens assembly, the constitutional convention, the one from back in 2013, they had looked at that and they had said it should be removed. And so we'll kind of get to vote on that. And then the women's place in the home clause is a a provision that's been controversial since it was announced in 1937. Um, It basically says that because of um, the, the the special role of, of women basically in, in the work that like women contribute to the state and the home. Yeah, exactly, it's exactly. Phrased in those types it's of phrased terms. in those terms that because of the, the valuable work women do at home, they shouldn't be forced by economic need to go out and, and work sort of, you know, more economic uh, 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 jobs. Uh, the people who wrote that said, we're just trying to be nice. We're, we're not trying to deny people the ability to go to work. We're just trying to say they shouldn't be forced to go to work if they don't want to. But it's really gendered and it's really old fashioned. And so people see it as as symbolically uh, very problematic. Again, it hasn't really done anything. It hasn't led to any court judgments that have been particularly controversial. It hasn't really done anything. But it's still there and I think people feel it's it's an anachronism from the 1930s and, and it has to go. And so for the, the same sort of reason, we'll be voting on that in October, November as well. And you think those would be fairly straightforward, uh, you know, campaigns in terms of um, the issues presented. And so hopefully people will have a fairly clear choice. It probably won't be as controversial as the referendum yeah. we're having at the moment. So hopefully that might be easier. Um, there may also be directly elected mayors, but I, I'm I'm really not sure that you need to have a constitutional change for that. The government clearly thinks maybe you do. So we might vote on that as well. Oh, I'm sorry. So when you were saying the government thinks the attorney general would present the government with like an opinion being like, you'll need to have a referendum before you can introduce this? Or how does it work? Uh, I'm not entirely clear on what the thinking is. I haven't heard from the government a clear statement on why this was maybe going to be put to a vote. Um, it could be because the, the Attorney General said, being the chief legal advisor mm. to the government, Attorney General might say, look, you have to have a constitutional change. Maybe that happened, but I don't recall that ever sort of, you know, uh, coming out. Um, it's also possible they just feel that people should have a say. It's an issue that, you yeah. know, maybe some people will like, other people Creating don't those offices will take time and money. And if you're going to make that kind of structural change in local government... It should probably kind of yeah. get a public consultation period. Why not put it in the constitution? Yeah, I yeah. guess, but but certainly it's it's one of those things that probably doesn't have to be put to a referendum. I think, uh, but you know that there's obviously different views on that, and that might be another one we're asked to vote on at the same time. I think there is a risk, and something you mentioned earlier, of sort of referendum fatigue if there's sort of four this year, four separate issues, and if people aren't as interested in all of them, there's a real risk that. And at least kind of one of them or maybe two of them, people just kind of don't pay attention and they walk into the the polling place and they're like, wait, what am I voting on here? What's <laughs> this? So I think that probably happened to some extent uh, with the same sex marriage referendum. There was also a referendum on reducing the age for eligibility to be president, which I think nobody cared about. <laughs> and it failed by about 80 percent to 20 or something. So I think if you sometimes attention is really on some other issues people don't pay attention to whatever else is going on so i think that's a that's a risk if you ask people loads of questions yeah at the same time cool and another thing that i wanted to talk about was i suppose the referendum commission kind of came in the mid 90s closely connected to the 15th amendment to the constitution which will introduce divorce and uh, the referendum commission is an independent body that provides people with 
impartial and unbiased information on whatever issue is going to be voted on in the referendum. How do you think this body is kind of interacting with social media campaigns and the way that elections have kind of changed in the era of Facebook and other other online platforms? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's it's definitely fair to say, and it's not a criticism of the Referendum Commission, to say that it is not equipped to deal with sort of the campaigns as they are now. It was always a body that was a great idea, but struggled to figure out what it was going to do. So the idea was it would give this sort of you know, impartial information about what the referendum was about to avoid sort of having biased sources either from government or uh, uh, elsewhere. The problem was they tried to initially give information on both sides. So it would give you a, a booklet and they would say, on the one hand, you should vote for this because it's great. But on the other hand, you shouldn't vote for it because it's terrible. And people <laughs> were really confused because which of those things is true? The Referendum Commission didn't want to take a side. So it just presented both arguments and that's not that helpful. So then it moved on to just providing information. And so what you usually get now is fairly uh, neutral, non-argumentative information about the facts of the referendum. And that's important, but it's not really kind of solving the problems that might come up in the debate and referendum commission it doesn't really have power let's say to do anything if a poster goes up in a referendum campaign that has inaccurate information or if someone mounts advertising even you know in in, through standard media channels it can't do a lot about that it then has no role on social media and there's no powers to regulate social media at all. And so you've had this big controversy in in recent weeks about what's going on with Facebook advertising and from foreign sources, you know, in this referendum. And uh, Facebook recently announced that they're they're planning to stop foreign bodies from advertising about this referendum on Facebook. But really that shows it's sort of it's being left to Facebook to do the regulating. We have no rules. It's it's really inadequate. And so I think something that everyone agrees upon is we now have to at least think hard about how do we want to regulate the use of social media. It's a a really powerful force. You can imagine using it to reach out to certain voters who are sort of, you know, particularly undecided or have, you know, clicked on links that suggest they don't know how they're going to vote. And you could target them with really kind of emotive information or ads or something. I think that's of concern to people because we don't know what's going on. We don't know who's doing it. We don't know how much money is being spent on it. So it's a real uh, oddity because most of the time in our referendum campaigns, there's very strict rules, but in this kind of area, there's none. So I think that's definitely going to have to be addressed. And in the next few years, I think we'll be having a big debate about that as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I suppose one final question I wanted to maybe like wrap up was when the referendum happens and votes are counted, there's still opportunities for people to challenge the results. What do you think, could you just talk a little bit about previous experiences or cases that have done that? Yeah, so uh, there is a process under the Referendum Acts to you know, challenge the result. And essentially, while those challenges are going on, you can't actually uh, finalise the, the, the change. So the, the change in a referendum is only totally final when the president signs the, the, the bill after the vote's taken place. And that can't happen until all the challenges are finished. So, 
usually what you'll get is challenges that aren't successful. So there was some very strange challenges to same-sex marriage back in, in 2015. Some really odd arguments were made, but it took, you know, two or three months to get those through the courts and, and dismissed by the Supreme Court finally. So the first thing is that if this referendum goes through, if people choose to challenge it, that could be a few months in terms of a delay, even if they have no good arguments at all, right? If they do have a good argument, and the only arguments that have really gotten anywhere, sort of, you know, made a real a real serious challenge, have been that the government has done a, a, um, a biased information campaign. So this happened... Public funds have been used to promote a certain viewpoint on the referendum. Exactly. So this happened during the uh, divorce uh, referendum, the second one in the 90s, and it happened during the children's rights referendum back in 2012. And because of, of those actually enacting, in particular, the children's rights referendum was delayed for a couple of years while that went on. And so if there is a more serious argument there, it can actually be a really big delay. But really, it's it's the only way you can you can challenge a referendum process. If you want to say that the vote was unfair, something in the campaign wasn't done properly, you have to make the challenge sort of immediately after the vote. The courts will hear your case if you don't have a good argument, it'll be done in a couple of months. But it does usually delay the process. And on any very controversial amendment, you would expect that somebody would would maybe take a, a challenge like that. So if the referendum passes at the end of May, it, it could be sort of August or even sort of September by the time the president gets to sign the bill, depending on how quickly any challenges might be might be heard. Oh, cool. That's great. Thanks so much, David. Really appreciate your time today. Pleasure. Thank you. Erin Fornoff is a Dublin-based poet from North Carolina. She has performed her poetry and spoken word at dozens of festivals across Ireland, the UK and the US, including Glastonbury, Electric Picnic and Kerch. Hymns to the Reckless, her anthology is published by Daedalus Press and now she reads Ask This Passport. Ask this passport. I sent in five years of phone bills, five years of documents showing my address in triplicate, the package thick enough it cost a tenner to send it. I sent in three months of rent. I found when the letter came, and with it, this passport, it gave me a nation and gave my womb to the church. Ask this passport. It gave me the short line at customs, the EU, the free smear. No more pre-dawn queuing on Berg Key to get a number to spread my folder across a desk eight hours later. I've spent years waiting in line for someone to stamp my form, to flick a visa across the counter like a VIP ticket, for the man to flutter my papers like currency and tell me whether I can keep my life here. I have to say I am tired of other people telling me whether I can keep a life. Ask this passport. It gave me a precious deed to citizenship and a new landlord over my whole body. Ask this passport. It will tell you you can board a plane to fly away from your problems, but they are always passengers. I have to say I am tired of people waiting in line at airports. I'm sick of people boarding planes. 
tired of being only a tenant in my skin, and tired of men with more money than me deciding what I make a home. Ask this passport, which gave me a new country, that gave me this life, this first vote, that made this law mine now, somehow more and less free. Ask what it gives me, but a world of choices, except for choice itself. Thanks for listening to Current. Remember you can tweet us at at currentddr or email us at current at dublindigitalradio.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on the Dublin Digital Radio SoundCloud.